I was headed in a different direction today uh, before we begin next week our series on the book of Revelation. There was a subject matter that I thought that I wanted to speak about in midweek. I kind of shifted gears, but I felt like there was some unfinished business from last week as well as uh, some things that I wanted to be sure that I addressed before we get into the book of Revelation next week. Now, I'm excited about studying the book of Revelation and this theme called Unconquered. Uh, In fact, on the 12th, when I will not be here, uh, I'm excited that uh, my professor of the book of Revelation from my college days will actually be preaching for me. Dr. Tony Moon will be here on June the 12th, and he is uh, a scholar, big time, of the book of Revelation. And so he'll take the second half of chapter 1 and talk about what that vision of Christ that John had is all about. So I'm glad that he's going to be a part of that series. We're going to have a great summer looking uh, even on into the fall with the book of Revelation. But this morning, I, I could not escape this subject of maximizing kingdom impact. Maximizing kingdom impact. And, and I'm coming to you from, from 2 Timothy because Timothy is someone who certainly, I think, with the help of his home and the help of the church, the help of a spiritual leader in his life, reached his impact for the gospel's sake. You know, we, we, when we think about this being Memorial Day weekend, we, we come thinking, there have been folks who have set an example, folks who have paid a price for us. Think about this, in the American wars that have been fought, and I'm just naming a few of them here, not all of the conflicts we've been involved in, but in the Revolutionary War, 25,000 Americans gave their lives. In the Civil War, 625,000 Americans died. In World War I, 116,000 plus gave their lives. In World War II, over 405,000 Americans lost their lives. In the Korean War, over 36,000 lost their lives. And in Vietnam, it was over 58,000. The Gulf War, 258 Americans gave their lives. In Afghanistan, the war with Afghanistan, over 2,300. And then in the war with Iraq, over 4,500 American soldiers gave their lives. You say, what does that have to do with Timothy? What's interesting is, as Paul writes all these words in this letter, the second letter to Timothy, in chapter 2 and verse 3, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so when we think about the fact that people have been willing to pay the ultimate price to be a soldier to fight for freedoms of our nation, Paul is writing a young man and he's saying, you are to be a soldier of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, to please the recruiter, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of everyday life. In other words, There are spiritual matters that are more important than the things that you deal with every day, those everyday mundane things, and you're to be engaged in spiritual battle because Paul wanted Timothy, as I want for myself, as hopefully you want for yourself and for your children and for generations to come, to have a maximum impact for the kingdom of God in this world. And he says, you need to be a good soldier of the cross. And so we can learn a lot from the soldier, what it means to have an impact on our world. Last week, we looked at Paul's words to Timothy as it related to being evangelized and equipped and established in the faith, which is so important. 
Now it seems like it's been a, quite a few weeks since Mother's Day, and we talked about the home being a big part of that as we sought to encourage our moms. And so today I want to further develop some principles that Paul would share with Timothy in this text. And I want it to be a little bit of a vision casting. I'm, I'm trying to plant some seeds here that I pray that will begin to sprout up by the fall when we start our new church year. Uh, because I'm going to be calling on some folks to help us implement something. And, and much of it's already been implemented here, but it, we're going to be a little bit more organized, a little more clear about what it is we're trying to accomplish. And when we, when we touch the, the nations, our neighborhoods, the next generation, it's all based on these biblical propositions this morning. And let me give you just kind of the, a summary of the proposition that I've written down. I'll share it with you. I'll share it again before we close, and you'll hear it a lot as we uh, approach a, a new church year at the end of the summer in August. Um, and here's the proposition. Maximum kingdom impact, which is what we should be after, right? Matthew six thirty three. seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Maximum kingdom impact occurs when the family and the church are totally committed and working in cooperation with one another. Maximum kingdom impact. When the family and the church are totally committed, committed to what? Committed to being what God called them to be. And when the family and the church are working in cooperation with one another, then we will raise up a generation who will have maximum kingdom impact for the glory of God, where people are saying, where is the soldier of the cross anymore? Where are those who will stand up for righteousness? And so it starts at home. Now, it shouldn't stay at home. Sometimes as a church, sometimes as Christians, we say, hey, it's all about the family. And, and really, that's the foundation. That's the starting point. But it shouldn't stay there. And I'll, I'll build on that in, in the text here. But I want you to begin with this principle. The foundation of our faith is laid at home. The foundation of our faith is laid at home. In, in, in an ideal world, that would always be the case. There are many who come to faith in Christ who have to do it in spite of rather than because of what's being taught and practiced in our homes. But the foundation of our faith is laid at home. Paul was a great mentor. And we look at Paul's shaping of Timothy's life and we're saying, man, Paul, you did a great job with Timothy. But if you read all of the scriptures, that wasn't always the case. Paul did not always have that kind of success, did he? Paul wasn't always so fruitful in every situation, even though he's the greatest missionary the world had ever known. Paul struggled at times, and if you recall, Paul had a hard time shaping a young man named Mark. And, and Paul basically said, I give up, I can't do anything with him. Why was it that Paul was so successful with Timothy in creating this world changer, this one who would influence his world, this young man who would reach his potential? And I believe Paul had a lot of help. And I believe the help happened and, and came in the home. Now, some of you school teachers, now that school's out, you're taking a big sigh, you're, you're, you're ready to rest a little bit. Um, as a matter of fact, as soon as school let out, a lot of school teachers left town. They're not here this weekend. <laughs> They're like, God, I need a break. I need to recover. But, but some of you school teachers know exactly what I'm talking about because you look at all this testing and all these things that, that have to demonstrate that education is taking place in our schools. And some of you school teachers know what I talk about when I say that you feel like sometimes it's just not fair because parents that get involved in the lives of their kids can make a teacher look really good 
And parents who don't get involved in the education of the lives of their children can make a teacher look really bad. If the foundation's being laid at home, if the help's taking place at home, then there can be this wonderful fruit that's taking place in the life of students. And Paul had something to work here. He was a son in the faith, verse 2 says. He, Paul calls him a son. They were very close in verse 4. You see that intimacy that's being spelled out, remembering your tears. Man, it was emotional when we couldn't be hanging out together anymore. He says, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. But then he says, clearly recalling, he knows where it came from in verse 5. He knows where the foundation was in Timothy's life. Your sincere faith that the Lord, or, or that first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and then your mother, Eunice, and that I'm convinced is in you. That word sincere, some of your translations say genuine or authentic. In the King James it says unfeigned. It's the word for not faked. It's, it's, uh, it's the, the negative prefix before the word hypocrite. It means his parents made sure he had a Genuine faith. His mother and his grandmother specifically named here. We don't know a lot about Timothy's father. He may have died when Timothy was young. But he says, they made sure you weren't faking it. They made sure you had the real deal. Now listen, parents and grandparents, I want to ask you to help your children out with this. Help your grandchildren out with this. A lot of times when it comes to the faith, we just want our kids to get enough of it not to embarrass us anywhere in public. And so that they're, they're kind of learning to fake it. And sometimes if you're not careful, parents, when you get into that keeping up appearance, they can have you fooled. Some of you are thinking, no, no, no. You, you can fool mom some of the time. Uh, you, know, or you, you can fool some people some of the time, or all people some of the time, some people all the time. I'll get this right in a minute. All the people some of the time, some of the people all the time, but you can't fool mom. But listen, I'm telling you, your kids, if it's not a sincere faith, if it's not practiced in the home, if it's not established in the home, if it's not modeled and constantly discussed, your kids can have you fooled. And so Paul is saying, Timothy, they, they established something in you. They didn't let you fake it. And I don't know how many times you hear from student ministers, even Pastor Ben has shared some of these stories with me, that they are aware of certain things because friends have come to them and told them that they are concerned about other friends. And Pastor Ben or other student ministers have shared with me in the past, and I've been there before as a student minister, and you're like, man, I know these kids are involved in something that is just horrible, and yet their parents aren't even aware of it. And it's going to be hard to have that talk with them. Or to sometimes have that talk again and again, and you say, they're, they're I just, they're, they're trying to fake it for their parents, and the parents don't want to dig a little deep and get the real answers to find out if this faith is real, if they're really living what they say they believe. And uh, Paul is saying, Timothy, your, your mother, your grandmother, they didn't let you fake it. They didn't let you get away with not being the real deal. It started in the home. The, the Shema, that great text, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then he says you're to take these commandments, these principles. And this was foundational for the faith in Israel. And he says you take these principles, these commands, these laws that you have received. And he said you be sure you get down to the tabernacle. And when we build a temple, you be sure you get down to the temple so that the student priests and the children's priests 
and the worship priest and the senior priest can make sure that they understand what the Bible says, right? Is that what what it says in Deuteronomy 6? Not at all. He says, you put this all over your house. Put it all over your home. You take the Word of God and the laws of God, the principles and the precepts of God, and you cover your home with this. And Lord, Church, I know that we get upset sometimes when when they've taken the Ten Commandments out of the schoolhouse and out of the courthouse, and we're like, no wonder society's falling apart. But listen, society is falling apart not because the Ten Commandments disappeared from the courthouse and the schoolhouse, where I am all for the Ten Commandments being in the schoolhouse and the courthouse, by the way. But that's not why society's falling apart. It's that the principles and the precepts of God have been left out of our homes, The breakdown of the family is why our culture is in trouble today. That's where it starts. With a mom and a dad who will say with Joshua, listen, choose you this day, rest of the nation, how you will live, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Israel was admonished to put the faith into practice and into the teaching, into the doctrine, into the conversations. He says, talk about these things as you walk along. Does that mean we need to have that faith walk with our kids every day? It would be a good thing, probably. But how did they get where they were going? They, they, they walked. <laughs> if they were going to travel somewhere, they, they walked. He says, as you rise up, as you lie down, as you walk along the way. And so at bedtime, at breakfast time, around the dinner table, and we don't walk, we drive most places we go. So in the car, be sure that as you do life together, you're discussing spiritual principles and precepts. What the Bible says, you're asking them how they're doing in their walk with God. You're asking them about their relationship with their friends. You're asking about, as they become teenagers, their relationship with the opposite sex and how they're behaving themselves there. And you don't let them fake it, you make them get real with you. That means for some of us, we have to reprioritize our time. Time to talk to our children about these principles and precepts of God. Look, if you will, just turn over a page or two in your Bible, 1 Timothy 3. Verses 14 and 15. I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3. <laughs> 2 Timothy 3 is still a couple of pages, but the other way. 14 and 15. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing those from who you learned, and that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. When did Timothy begin to learn these things? When he met the Apostle Paul, when he became a part of a church plant, he learned these things in the home, which made him wise from childhood, wise unto salvation. So we've got to reprioritize our time and reprioritize, listen, families, we've got to reprioritize our subject matter. Grandparents, Sometimes you start to think about those grandkids and you're like, I don't know how many years I have left with my grandkids. Reprioritize your time and teach them all that you can about the principles and precepts of God and how they work in your life. And parents, let's make that a part of our homes first. We don't hire a minister of students to bring about the spiritual nurture and admonition that happens in the home. And then the church facilitates what's going on. So reprioritize our time and reprioritize the subject matter, those things we're talking about. See, I know that with my son, we're going to talk a lot about racing and we're going to talk a lot about grades. But I want to make sure that we talk a lot about sexual purity. I want to be sure we talk a lot about security in Christ. 
want to be sure that we talk about his personal testimony and the importance of having a good testimony. Then, when it comes to the church, the church is facilitating what's already happening in the home. And just like in a school, a church will be successful when we're facilitating what the parents are already seeking to accomplish in the home. So the second point this morning is real quick. The facilitation of our faith continues at church. As an apostle, as a church planning pastor, and as a mender, Paul didn't leave everything completely to the home, but he built on what was happening in the home. The church is to be a faithful family as well. We're the family of God. And so while we know that all of this starts in the home and there's responsibilities for a father and and for a mother in the home, there's also a responsibility for a church family to reinforce all of that and facilitate what God's doing in the home. To, as we saw last week, to equip and establish the saints for the glory of God. In verses 2 and 3, you see that these building relationships with people in, in this context is what makes it so impactful. He says to Timothy, my dearly loved child, It's not a biological son, but the relationship was so tight in the church. This mentoring that was going on, he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm giving God thanks for you, Timothy. Thankful that you're in my life, whom I serve with a clear conscience. As my forefathers, when I constantly remember you in in my prayers day and night, I'm praying for you. And I'm thankful to have a family that loves me, but I'm also thankful to have a church family full of people who are praying for me and loving me. In verses 6 and 7, we see this personal responsibility passed on to Timothy but that, that, that is expressed in the world, but just look at verses 8 and following and, and see how the gospel is reinforced first in, in the church. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner, instead sharing the suffering of the go- for the gospel, relying on the power of God who, was saved, who, who has saved us and called us with a, a holy calling, not according to our works, but, but according to his own purpose and his grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald, apostle, and a teacher. Paul was saying, Timothy, I'm a a spiritual leader that God has placed in your life to make sure you understand the gospel, to make sure your roots are deep in the gospel, to make sure that, that there are things that you understand about the faith that you are not willing to compromise And so that was a role he had as a leader in the church, and there are people that serve as leaders in our church today, not only the pastor and the ministry staff, but people who volunteer and serve in all kinds of areas of leadership to be sure that we're grounding our brothers and sisters in Christ in the gospel, be sure that we're teaching this word from classroom to classroom, from a a, a WANA ministry to student ministry to our preschool and all that takes place that we're being further grounded in the gospel. Because as a church, we come together and we realize, wait a minute, we're a family. We're, we're, we may not have been biologically kin at birth, but we're a family. And we will work together. We will stick together. We'll go through hard times together. We'll go through good times together. For the sake of this gospel, we're going to be grounded in it. We're going to be established in it. So you see, the facilitation of our faith continues at church. And then finally, once you see the fruition of our faith, 
is expressed in the world. The fruition of our faith. See, the faith is to start at home. But if we're not careful, we'll say, well, you know, the faith, faith is all about the, the family. And so, so I don't so much need, one of the things this morning in our life group that we discussed that, that people will rationalize or that people will come up with kind of a, uh, a, a spiritual reason to miss out on what God's doing in the church is to say, well, you know, family's the first priority. Family's number one, and it is. That's the foundation. But God's called us to be a part of another family, the church family, and then to take that family and to be sought and light in the world, not, not to just kind of, I know we would like to do this in this crazy world we'd live in. We'd love to so isolate our family, hide our kids, and just kind of be away from everybody that we can be in the world and to protect them. But God's called us to be salt and light. And, and what starts in the home must not stay at home. It must have maximum kingdom impact. And so in verse 6, he, he goes on to say, it is the hard work, I'm sorry, I'm chapter 2 again, back to chapter 1, verse 6. Therefore I remind you to keep ablaze the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. That which happened in the church, I want you to set that on fire. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. You don't need to be hiding out. You don't need to be afraid because you are young. Remember, he would tell him, also, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but be an example to the believer. God's not giving us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of clear, sound judgment so that these students who are graduating, these students who are stepping out into the world ready to make a difference, that if they've come up through a home that loves Jesus and has made the Word of God clear, if they've come up in a church that's brought these principles to light again and again and helped them to be equipped and established by them, then they don't have to have a fearful, a, a timid spirit as they walk out, but one of power of love because now they have sound judgment. They can think biblically clear about those things that they will be tackling in this world. So the fruition of it is expressed in the world. Then he charges Timothy, you know, to have uncompromised impact again and again. In verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and in love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who lives in us that good thing entrusted to you, that gospel that you got to take to the world, that, that standard by which you are to live. Don't just say, hey, I've got it, and I'm going to heaven, and I'm good, or my family's good, but get it out there and make a difference in the world. In, in 1955, the most feared disease in America was polio. And then Jonas Salk comes along and invents a vaccine. Of course, polio had become well-known under President FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, had polio himself and was confined to a wheelchair. And so it was the most feared disease that Jonas Salk discovers in the laboratories. He discovers through great scientific research a vaccine for polio. Now what if he had done all of that because he enjoyed it in the lab, but he had never made it known to the world? What if he had done that and said, you know, I can protect my family with this? but he had never made it known to the world. If he had said, I did this for the sheer enjoyment of working in a lab and, and discovering all these wonderful truths and all these scientific facts, if, if he had said, I did it for that, I didn't do it to share it with the world, we would say, what a cruel human being. 
If he had said, well, I did it for my family and my friends and those who could be a part of my personal life because I want to save their lives, but I didn't do it for the world, we would still say, what a cruel human being this is. But instead, he said, because of the desperate need in our world, I had a discovery that I needed to share. And through sharing that discovery, he eliminated virtually all fear of polio. It's certainly in our nation today. It's not something that we wake up every morning being worried about, being concerned about, being fearful of. See, the church can be like a laboratory sometimes. It's a place where we come together and we open the Word of God together and we we discover answers. We find answers for life and we could say, well, this is for us. This is for the family. This is for the church family. Or sometimes even in our home, that's the laboratory. And we love the process of discovery. That's one of the things about, as many people as I have asked me, that have asked me to preach through Revelation sometimes, I've been a little bit skeptical of, of, of preaching through Revelation because my fear is that everybody wants to know all these answers for us so that we can feel secure in who we are but not know the answers to take to our world. Jonas Salk took his vaccine to the world. We've got the cure for sin. We've got the answer to life's questions when it comes to how we're going to make it. We need to realize maximum kingdom impact, which is what we should be about, occurs when the family and the church are totally committed, working in cooperation with one another, and then to take their discoveries to the world. That's the fruition of our faith. That's world impact. Now you say, well, what is it that you want to share with us? What, what is it that the uh, Lord's laid on your heart? What will it look like? Life is hard. Life is meant to be a journey. And so what I want to be sharing with the church this fall, that, that seed that I wanted to plant, I'm, I'm referring to as seven summits of faith. You know, the, the word seven summits often refer to the challenge of climbing the highest peak on every continent. I don't know who's wanted to tackle that before. Climbing the highest peak on every continent, saying you did the seven summits, that'd be a pretty awesome task. Working your way way up to mountains like Kilimanjaro and and finally Mount Everest to say, I climbed Mount Everest. And those who want to tackle that are told to be trained in, in the following areas. Be ready to deal with avalanches. Things may come down on you, right? Be prepared to deal with falling rocks. Be prepared to deal with crevice falls. Be prepared to deal with exhaustion, dehydration, whiteouts. Be prepared to deal with lost tents. Be prepared to deal with frostbite, pneumonia, accidents. And be prepared, and here's a tough one, be prepared to deal with grief and loss along the way. Because right now there's a 5% death rate. One out of 20 who try to climb Mount Everest lose their life. Be prepared to deal with these things if you're going to tackle the seven summits. Well, what are the seven summits of faith and how do we prepare? And I want us to look at this from from cradle to tassel, from, from the time someone is born, if they come up through the ministries of our church, how can the church and the family be working together? What are those seven summits? And then as parents and grandparents, how do we, revisit these again and again. And so here are some of the things that we're going to be putting before you in the months to come. 
The first summit I've called the Preparation Summit. The Preparation Summit. Here we're talking about from birth to preschool, being intentional. Not just babysitting, but being very intentional during these years. We want to prepare an environment by equipping parents and equipping our preschool leaders in our church to be at their very best. And this is an area where we've grown. All of these areas, by the way, I think that we're doing some wonderful things in. This is just a way of communicating to the people around us, our community and our world, hey, here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's a way of putting some uh, measurable core competencies out there. Like, uh, are homes consecrated for this purpose? Are there supportive grandparents and, and parents? Is there a loving, nurturing, and a joyful preschool environment in the home and in the church where children can grow safely knowing that they're going to hear again and again a couple of facts. God made me and God loves me. God made me and God loves me. You say, well, that's so simple, but it's a simple fact that's being denied in our world today. And so and during those preschool years, we want to drive that home so clearly. What is the celebration? By the way, for each one of these seven summits, there's a moment of celebration, sometimes before those years are over, sometimes after those years are over, but there's a celebration that goes with each summit. The celebration is what we call the parent-child dedication. And we have families from time to time that want to have a dedication service for parent and child, and I want to encourage everyone to celebrate that, whether it's in the home or in the church, but to involve the church and family and as many people as possible in that celebration called the parent-child dedication. The next summit I've called the presentation summit because these are some of the most vital years for presenting the gospel clearly and helping kids to understand the gospel. It's from kindergarten through third grade. Those are the years that the brain begins to be able to grasp gospel essentials. Not only that God loves me, but now that I'm a sinner. That Jesus Christ died on a cross for my sins. That he rose from the grave. That the Bible is God's word and it is truth without any mistake. that these kids can, at an early age, understand what remorse and repentance is and faith is. And, of course, the celebration for that one we've experienced this morning is water baptism. It's water baptism. It's a picture outwardly of what Christ has done inwardly. Now, baptism could come at any point after salvation, and it can come later in years, and I enjoy baptizing adults, senior adults, middle adults, young adults. But we want to be sure that every child in our homes and in our church at an early age, they understand all the essentials of the gospel so that they can make a faith decision to give their heart and life to Jesus Christ. The sooner the better. Number three, the third summit is the, what I would call the preteen summit. This is a fun time, right? Fourth and fifth graders. It's where you find your identity is in Christ and what it means to be identified with Christ. Finding your self-esteem in who Jesus is, not in what you did last week. We might call it Christ esteem. Understanding what it means to be redeemed by God. And by the end of the fifth grade year, preparing for adolescence, putting tools in the hands of our parents and specific opportunities to help them prepare for adolescence. And I've shared some of this with Pastor Ben. He was real excited about it. And so my, my challenge for him and, and for us as a church was to come up with a fourth and fifth grade retreat to celebrate this that has a family night involved with it where parents are a part of it as well. But a fourth and fifth grade retreat to celebrate what God is doing in their lives as preteens. For middle school, the next summit, we'll call it the Pure Heart Summit. 
middle school is a lot about healthy relationships. Helping middle schoolers to learn what it means to have healthy relationships at home, at church, at school, in their community, wherever they are. To understand the importance of moral purity because when they begin to relate to others, they need to do it in a way that is pure. To, to lay a foundation for abstinence and to continue to build on their identity in Christ. And this year we're going to have, for the first time, a middle school camp where we take those CIT kids and the, that oldest group for those sixth graders that were in the children's camp and we have a camp just for those middle schoolers to talk to them about some of this their, their identity in Christ, those healthy relationships, their purity how to be a leader, not a follower when it comes to this world. And so we want to challenge for parents for this celebration of this summit to have for their young men a rite of passage ceremony of some kind, and I'll be willing to help you with that. I did the same thing for my son. And for young ladies to have that moment of, uh, of purity, for it, it could be a father-daughter date. In some cases, it may be a a mother-daughter outing, depending on the role of the father or, or the, the presence of the father in the home. But I remember taking my daughter when she turned 13 years old. As a matter of fact, I don't know if Tina's still resentful of this or not. No, she wasn't resentful. But the most I've ever spent on a date, and the most dressed up I've ever gotten for a date, I guess, was when I took my daughter on that 13-year-old father-daughter date. Not only had I spent the most money I ever spent on a meal, as most money I'd spend on a ring, <laughs> other than an engagement ring, other than a wedding ring, but I, but I gave her a purity ring. And so there needs to be a celebration, a ceremony of those purity years, that, that, pure, that pure heart summit. You'd say, well, I don't know if I want to talk to, about all, about, to them about all those things in middle school. If you wait till high school, it's too late. And so we've got to start when they're in middle school talking about sexual purity. And then in ninth and 10th grade, we call this the Purpose for Life Summit, where we're building on the things that we've already discussed in middle school in the preteen years, but then we incorporate things like spiritual gifts, the Great Commission, and your service in the kingdom, the church family, and the importance of being a part of that. Because if they don't nail that down in ninth and 10th grade, as soon as they begin driving, it'll be see you later. And so we'll cover some of those issues, but we'll provide families again with tools in those areas. We'll talk about biblical manhood and womanhood. Every ninth and 10th grader at Trinity Baptist Church needs to be able to tell you why it is still Bruce Jenner and not whatever else he wants to go by. But biblical manhood, biblical womanhood. A celebration for these Purpose for Life years is that I believe by the ninth and 10th grade year, every student needs to have had the opportunity to go on a mission trip either somewhere in North America or around the world. Some of them will have done it in middle school. Some of them will wait till later. But we want them to have had the opportunity by the time they get to 10th grade to have gone on a mission trip and to have a moment to really discuss those things with their families about what it means to have a vision for our world. By 11th and 12th grade, these, this is the Passion for Life Summit. Passion for Life. What I've noticed about it, once they do start driving, once they get in 11th and 12th grade, they're either going to be leaders or they're not going to be around. And so we want to equip them for leadership. We need to deal with things like apologetics, knowing what they believe, why they believe it, and how to defend it when they get in a college classroom one day. The will of God, courtship, preparing for marriage, stewardship, 
and building on those things we've already established in relationships. The celebration will be a junior-senior retreat. We're already doing that. But we, and I've, I've discussed this with Pastor Ben, we want to work harder at communicating to parents the importance of that junior-senior retreat. Because the tendency, once you start driving, is to say, oh, well, they're doing something down at the church. I might want to be a part of it. I might not. I don't know how much fun it's going to be. I might have something more important. We want parents to understand, and we want students to understand. This junior-senior retreat is going to be very vital in the life of our church and the life of these young people as they prepare for what's next in their life. That's the Passion for Life Summit. And then we would call it the Pursuit of Call Summit. This is adulthood. This is for all of us. But this is where we launch them out to walk with God, teach them about accountability, and help encourage them, build up courage in them to discover a vision to have goals for life, to have disciplines in place that will lead them to be successful spiritually in life. And the celebration is one we're also already doing, but we want you to make it a big deal at home just as much as it is at church, and that's the graduation recognition times. And when you're a preacher's kid, you just happen to have the, both moments for the family and community and the church, all at the church, but we'll help you do that any way we can, wherever we can. But those are the seven summits. And I pray that you will be seeking the Lord's direction of how you can be a part of that and help us establish that. See, it starts in the home. It is facilitated by the church. We have to be working together on that. Then it's got to be extended in the world. And Trinity, I'm excited to be a part of this church. I'm excited to be leading a, a, a group of folks who really love the Lord and have a heart for the next generation. But we need to constantly, constantly be asking, how can we be even more faithful to the mission God's called us to than we even are now? And so as I shared some of these things with Pastor Ben, he was like, man, I love it. Let's go with it. And so we're going to be putting some things before you. I've shared just a little bit of this. I sent out a message to our leadership in children's ministry and our preschool. And God's got some wonderful things in store for us as a church. But we've got to be asking, how can we be at our very best in these areas? Don't say it's all up to the church and the staff. It starts in the home, but it can't stay there. Would you bow your heads with me?